Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Seguin in conversation with one of those leaders today. Good afternoon, podcast listeners uh, to Thrive at 20, our 20th anniversary in September of 2023. And uh, we're having a series of good conversations with people that we've admired over the years. And today we're joined by Gerard Fernandez, who's the managing partner at Nobisend Inc., which is a new venture for you, right, Gerard, as of what, September of this year? Yeah, September this year, Rob. Wow. So I'm continuing one and you're starting one. So maybe you'll get call me 20 years from now when you're 20 years in. <laughs> if well, hopefully I'll be uh, one quarter as successful as you are, then I'll, I know I've made it. So uh, looking forward to that. But uh, congratulations again. On your 20 years, Rob. Really appreciate it. Thanks. So you'll always be famous here at Thrive Partnership Group because you were my first victim, my first client. Uh, I don't know if I kept the invoice, but I certainly have a very fond memory of meeting you for the first time. Uh, Your boss at the time at Biogen was Glenn Block, if I remember correctly. Yep. And Glenn and I had worked together for years at Allergan on the Botox business and a little bit NICARE. And then when he got the gig to come over and be the marketing and sales head at Biogen, he reached out to me. He and his boss, a guy named Rob Hamilton, who I know you remember quite fondly. Absolutely. Um, and uh, it's a funny little story because I remember going around and meeting Glenn's direct reports. And I came into your office and I laughed as soon as I walked through the door because your office looked like my office when I was your age. There were piles of stuff everywhere. <laughs> it was like organized chaos and uh, you were really high energy and, and uh, you, you were in had that intensity. And I think the first thing I said to you is, Oh my God, you remind me of me a few years ago and we had a good laugh. And then I think that started our relationship. But uh, if I remember correctly, you guys at Biogen at the time, this is going back close to 20 years. We're launching a new technology for in, in the MS space. Is that right? No, it was actually psoriasis. Oh, psoriasis, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The first, uh, biologic, first biologic for psoriasis. Yeah, and I had conversations with you and Glenn, John Haslam, a few other people in the building just to acclimate us to this, the situation that I was being pulled into. And then I promised Rob Hamilton I'd stop in his office the end of the day. And he said, so do you think you can help us? And I said, well, yes, but I'm probably going to go at this a little differently than maybe you had originally expected. And he said, how so? I said, I don't think I need to come in here and consult on the strategy part. You've got some really bright marketing and uh, strategic folks. And I was thinking of our conversation in your office. And he said, well, listen, I don't care how you do it, but help us have the best launch in the world. I said, I'll do that, but I don't need to teach these guys marketing. These guys know what they're doing. What I'm going to try to do is help pull together the pieces so that this team functions at the highest possible level. And Rob was great because he said, that doesn't matter to me. I'm willing to have you come in and provide value because I know you've had a successful track record, Rob, with launching products in this country. So as long as I get what I want at the end, you can do it any way you want. <laughs> so that started our practice and, and shifted us away from strategy per se and more into the organizational health and team development work that we're, we're now, I guess, somewhat known for. So I have to thank you, Gerard, because you were probably the person that steered us most quickly to that outcome. We kind of knew as we were starting, 
that that was going to be a part of the mix that we were offering clients because it was certainly part of the experience I had in my pharmaceutical career that strategy was important, but more important in my opinion and my, certainly my experience was the chemistry of the team and the quality of the leaders that were on the team. But it just seemed to me at Biogen, you and Glenn and John had really put together a very strong group of people and the culture was in decent shape. But I just, I think where I saw the opportunity was to try to help bring the best out of all that talent that was assembled because those, everybody in that group has gone on to bigger and better things. So can, can you maybe just give us your impression of that group that you were working with a pretty special group and where everybody ended up afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think uh, I have, I still have a little uh, picture that uh, Glenn had uh, framed for us. I have the three amigos. So it was myself, Glenn and John uh, in this, uh, in this picture frame, but you know, that was a unique time, right? Uh, we're at Biogen and um, we had this product called Amaviv or psoriasis. It was really the first biologic launch to the market. Um, we had a year and a half pre-launch uh, time uh, there, Rob, at that point in time. And we had the, the opportunity to hire who we wanted. So I was the first hire uh, for that group. Glenn got hired uh, second, then uh, John. And then we hired the rest of the team um, after that. And, and it was just a spectacular team. Like you said, you know, when you when you very strategically hire people for roles and you're looking for people that can fit together uh, and coordinate really well together, it makes a huge difference. And it did on our team. You know, we had incredible marketers, incredible um, market access uh, individuals, market research people, and our sales team was uh, amazing as well. They had tons of experience uh, in, in sales but not necessarily the dermatology market. So some had dermatology experience, some had other experience, but together they were an amazing uh, team. Yeah, and, and it was so much fun to be in the room with that group. The energy level was so high and there was a lot of excitement. Everybody was pretty keen to, I remember uh, Glenn talking about this idea that you all had to have the best launch in the world because I think there was only a few countries that had launched before Canada. And, and, you know, you guys were all a little competitive. The whole group was. And I love the idea that you were hoping that the, I think it was the senior vice president would acknowledge that you had the best launch in the world at the end. That was one of the parts of that vision statement that you put together. And in my recollection, that actually came true, right? You got some nice recognition from the higher ups at Biogen after the launch was all said and done. Did I yeah, we did. That, right. You know, we set a pretty high bar you know, and goal for ourselves, what we wanted to achieve, and we surpassed it by quite a lot. So we're 170% of budget. Meanwhile, you know, other countries with the same product had gotten to about 30% of what they had put in for budget. And wow. so we were very proud of ourselves at what we had been able to achieve you know, through a lot of hard work and pre-launch work and, and dedication. Um, you know, I think it it's special when you get a group of people together that have a very aligned look at where we want to go uh, with things and everyone sticks to the game plan right that's not always easy in a team but everyone understood what the game plan was everyone stuck to the game plan and we achieved excellence you know do, doing that in the right way possible now when you guys got asked as those numbers were rolling in and as the gap between your performance and other countries was becoming obvious you know what explains the canadian performance what answers did you give back to the senior management team that they could understand and did they then get some help from you guys to look at lower performing 
markets? Did Canada become a a gold standard for the rest of the organization? And did that impact the way you guys did your work? Were you asked to lean in globally? How did it how did it shake out once it was obvious that you guys were having a record global performance? Yeah, they definitely did ask us, you know, what was, you know, the, what was happening in Canada, what was making the difference. And it was really three things, Rob. One was strategically, we decided to go to a path that other countries hadn't with a concept called remission and helping physicians understand that this product, you know, created remission in patients and that if you were able to give the patient remission, that would, you know, remove their disease altogether and change the lives of these patients. And physicians bought into it with the work that we had done, you know, a year in advance of launch, really helping them understand that product, uh, the product attribute. The second piece was in terms of culture within the team is everyone was aligned to the strategy, but also everyone understood what we wanted to achieve and how important it was. You know, patients were at the heart of what we wanted to do. So we did spend quite a lot of time uh, talking to patients, understanding their stories, seeing what was happening with them and trying to make sure that we could help the physicians understand the plight of the patient and that they could then help their patients understand how our drug could benefit them. And, and the third piece of it was really just integrating all of our systems together to make sure that everything was aligned and going down the same path. Um, also from the market access point of view, the regulatory point of view. So ensuring that the product monograph was the best it could be and that it had a lot of wording that other product monographs around the world or PIs around the world didn't have. Yeah, and all of that, I, I recall that starting early was a big advantage that you had the resources to go to market before the approval, because there's a lot of preparation work that needed to be done on the label, on relationships, uh, understanding the patient journey, all of that research was being done. You know, a lot of your colleagues in the life science industry in Canada bemoan the fact that it's got to a point in many cases that the funding doesn't arrive until just about the time or just, sometimes even just after uh, the government gives approval for the drug to enter the market. And, and that's to me, it's such a huge miss because when, when you've got a technology like this, which was a game changing technology, and this happens more often than not, of course, rare disease, as you know, very well, or even in medical device where there's a, a, a leapfrog, gosh, it's just so short-sighted to not give local the local management team, the benefit of the extra 12 months or so. And I really was impressed from the moment I walked into that room with you, you guys, that those were a couple of things that struck me. You had the luxury of the extra time to prepare. And then you seem to cherry pick people who were at that point in their career where they really wanted a chance to, to make a big difference. They knew they were taking a little bit of a risk joining which at the time was a bit of a startup uh, entity in Biogen. Now it seems crazy to say that because it's such a well-established biotech company, one of the top probably five in the world. But at the time, it was it was a bit of a risky play for people who had had a standard career path in, in pharma to go over and play in the biotech space, so to speak. But I, I remember that first conversation is exactly what you just described. There was such a commitment from everybody in the room that, you know, they had made the career move because they believed that the science was so profoundly different. And you could, you could, I remember asking you guys, so what's the best possible outcome you can imagine at the end of the first year of launch? And of course the numbers were discussed and because we're all business people, <laughs> but there were so many comments about the patient journey, about the impact on health and well-being, on getting to work 
in a team that, that was built from the ground up that was special, which is, you know, a, a big factor for people who, you know, have to commute to work every day through Toronto traffic. You don't want to drive someplace 45 each minutes each way only to have a miserable team to work with. So it was a really, it was a really fun place. I love going into your building. Uh, I was so energized every time I pulled into that parking lot because all of those ingredients were in place, but it sure jettisoned the career of everyone that had a chance to touch that drug and a couple of blockbusters that came after it. So for you, you must have really, you must look back now, Gerard, on your decision to leave kind of the general pharma category and, and move into the biotech space with Biogen. That, that for you seemed to be a real jettison point. Is that true? Absolutely, Rob. You know, it was, it's a bit of luck too, right? So you know, you're at the right place at the right time uh, and you get that opportunity. When you get that opportunity, you have to take advantage of it. Right? And I think all of us uh, took advantage of that opportunity and maximized that opportunity uh, together. Uh, and that's what made the difference at the end of the day is, you know, thinking very clearly, working very hard uh, and maximizing the opportunity. You know, the KOLs that we worked with uh, on a regular basis, they had a lot of relationships with Rob Hamilton uh, and with John Haslam too from the past. And so we parlayed those relationships as well uh, in our new venture with, our, with Amabeve and Striasis. And worked very hard with them to help them understand how we could help them and how they could help us. So it was a two-way street, which I think sometimes is a little harder in today's day and age to, you know, help the physicians in their practice and help them to be better at what they do um, versus actually, you know, just working on the product piece. Yeah. Yeah. Because it changed the whole way that they approached the, the diagnosis and the treatment of the disease, like to make that bold claim about remission. Uh really changed the dynamic between them and their patients too, right? Because the frustration around that category, around psoriasis. And, and since then, you look at the number of new technologies that have come into that space, it shows that back then there was a lot of unmet needs and a lot of frustrations in the patient journey from childhood right through to adulthood. So so what was the difference in we, Gerard, <laughs> after, after that experience? So you think of yourself coming in the door, uh, being number two, behind Rob, one of the first employees he hired. And then when you left Biogen, what, what do you think changed about you, about your brand, about the way you looked at business, about you as a human being? I think quite a few things changed. You know, I had my first uh, management opportunity there. So learning how to lead people and think about things in a different way and, and how important it was to really care about the people that you work with. I think it started off really at Biogen and uh, understanding what pre-launch meant to a brand and how much you can affect a brand by doing it effectively and, and working hard and and trying things in an out of the box manner too, Rob. And I, you know, we did a lot of out of the box things with the label, uh, with our work with physicians. You know, we had a a, a meeting that we had uh, in in Vancouver and we had advertisements all over the place. We even had like a a, a mobile uh, billboard running around and our competitors were sitting there going, "What's wrong with these people? Why are they doing this?" But the idea here was just a little bit of guerrilla marketing just do something different, right? And add some flavor to it and have people talk about it. Sometimes, you know, speaking about a product or speaking about something, whether it's, you know, good, bad, or ugly can benefit. And it definitely benefited us because everyone was talking about MV just before launch. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it took over the Canadian Durham meeting. I, I seem to recall that year, like uh, to say you guys had gotten tremendous PR from a the small budget, budget that you had is an understatement. It, it, I don't know how you and your agency pulled it off, but it, I was hearing back from my dermatology customers that 
the main theme of the meeting, it seemed to be beyond the, you know, the education that they received, but on the commercial industry side, it was all about Amaviv that year. So were there, any, was there any memory there that particularly sticks with you now? You know, I think it's just the camaraderie of the team more than anything else. Uh, it was a very special time with very special people. And actually the memory that sticks with me the most is an unfortunate memory. Right, which is uh, when we found out that they were going to be selling the product to Estellas. Yeah. Um, and you know, we had to tell the team that. Uh, and just a reaction for the team, because everyone was still focused and dedicated and wanted to make sure that we left that product in the best hands possible, in the best way possible. And normally in that type of situation, people would jump ship very rapidly, Rob. But the team didn't. They waited for a little bit longer, made sure we had things in place so that we could help our patients and do the best for them. And then people started to leave. Um, after that, which made it, you know, which was a huge impact on me. It just, it spoke volumes as to what we had done and what we achieved as a team and how important, you know, our job and our role was um, with those patients and for those physicians. Yeah, it was a really unusual circumstance, wasn't it, to have uh, taken your baby to market, had the kind of success that you guys had had for probably about four years plus, and then for that announcement to be made corporately. Um, but like you say, to your, to the credit of the folks who were there, they kept their eye on the most important thing, which was the relationship with the physicians and the patients. And many people stayed, I, I would say, if they look back now, a, a little longer than maybe ideally for their own interests and their own brand. But in the bigger picture, everybody did quite well. So yeah. maybe talk a little bit about the other folks that you got to work with and what you admire about their journey post Biogen, and then we'll come back to your own experience after Biogen. But you really got to work with some special people there, and there's some people that really jump out, stand out to you. Absolutely. Well, you know, the funny part is a lot of those people I work with again and again at, at other places too, uh, Rob. So, you know, Rob Hamilton, uh, you know, as you said, led the team, uh, brought on the people initially, including myself. And let us do what we need to do, right? Didn't interfere in the process and allowed us to manage what we did. And he went on from being the head of marketing uh, there to actually, you know, leading Biogen and then going on to leading UCB. And uh, so, you know, he had an incredible career jumping off from that uh, as well. Then uh, John Haslam, who was uh, also led the team at one point in time after Glenn left, uh, went on to, to uh, lead um, a business unit at UCB and then uh, actually led at Alexion Pharmaceuticals. Was a GM there, then the GM at Horizon, uh, and now most recently the GM at uh, Arginex. So he's had an incredible career uh, too. And then we had you know, a series of uh, reps in the field who continued on to have incredible roles in other companies um, leading uh, in their sales environment as well. Yeah, it was a nice little incubator or hotbed of talent that now, 20 years later, they're everywhere. Um, when I see you guys at meetings, it's kind of fun because you can see the camaraderie. The storytelling is always uh, entertaining. So, yeah, I mean, look at the record of just those people you spoke about. They, they've had now 20 years later such an impact on the life science industry in Canada, rare disease. Um, many of those people are the pioneers behind what has now become a progressive rare disease sector in Canada. It it was rough those first few years and you certainly lived through that. So when you left Biogen, you did a, if I recall correctly, you had a little time to just do some consulting before you decided where you were going to land. Right. Um, right. And what was the focus of your practice at that time? 
So, you know, I was super lucky, Rob, because uh, Rob Hamilton had uh, started up UCB and he needed people to get on board initially. Uh, so I actually worked on his uh, team, the RA side. So we launched the RA Molecule Simsia uh, there. So as a consultant at first, and then went on to actually join the team as the head of commercial for that uh, business unit and um, with UCB. But I also did some other consulting work with different companies. Um, whether it was uh, in the metabolic uh, area or the cancer area. So that was really interesting to be able to see some different uh, pharmaceutical areas and how they actually um, set up their programs. Because uh, you know, especially the oncology area is quite different from some of the uh, biologic areas. Yeah, you got your first taste of the consulting opportunity pretty early in your career relative to other folks. And it's actually now a very common model, as you and I see you know, it's not unusual for talented people to be caught between gigs. You know, there's a merger that happens, there's a correction, there's a uh, a buyout, you know, and you see really talented folks uh, with great resumes and they're suddenly without a gig. And I, I think the ones that adapt most quickly and most successfully are the ones who say, I'm not sure what's around the next corner. And this was a little bit of a surprise in some cases, they couldn't see coming, but to really dig in and say, well, you know, let's, I'm going to consult. I have some real unique skills that I've learned from the experiences that I've had. And there's certainly places to bring that in, into to companies in, in, in the space and then take advantage of the broader learning that comes from consulting because the advantage of being on this side of the desk that I've enjoyed for 20 years is you pick up pieces in a lot of different places each week. You know, you don't get the same depth. They don't get the same teamwork and camaraderie but the advantage is you're learning a lot from a lot of people and i know you took full advantage of that year to get out and touch base with lots of folks and see the landscape the broader landscape of the life science industry in canada i think it made your decision to jump in with both feet at ucb a more informed decision because you could see what else was going on in the industry and i remember you being pretty excited about that rheumatoid arthritis uh, business in in UCB and helping Rob get that up to a point where it became the cornerstone of their platform. And I think even today, it's still a big part of their footprint here in Canada. So that must have been fun to come back and to work with some people you know you knew, but in a different space, in a completely startup environment. What What did you take away from that new environment? Because it was quite a bit different than Biogen. Uh, some things were the same, but it was it was a different work environment. There was a different ownership or senior management team above you guys. I, if I remember correctly, UCB is a French-based company, correct? Yeah. So again, yeah. there's a different cultural okay. aspect there. But what were the things now when you look back on that couple of years with, with UCB that you took with you in your journey today? So a few things. One is, like you said, you know, it was a startup uh, in Canada. So I was a third person part of the team. So you get a, a, an experience like no other, right? You get a chance to touch every different part of the business and wear all the different hats, Rob. Uh, and that was super exciting for me. I love learning and that was a huge opportunity both to be challenged, but also to learn uh, a ton of things at one time. So, you know, both on the regulatory side, the uh, pricing and access sides and medical side, even, you know, across all the different, uh, all the different parts of the business. The second piece is, you know, we had a unique product, but, um, you know, there's a lot of anti-TNFs in the market uh, and in the RA market. 
And the U.S. had decided that they would do a co-agreement um, with OXO. So OXO makes kitchen appliances mostly, but they wanted to, you know, differentiate by having OXO make our syringes and our auto syringes. So actually getting to see how that worked, you know, how that deal worked with them and and how we were going to work with them to make a make a difference for patients, but also differentiate our product. That was quite unique um, uh, situation at UCB. The other piece was building a team again from scratch. It was super exciting, you know, putting together the business unit. Uh, the marketers, the sales team, uh, hiring on the medical team. Uh, it was really uh, fun to you know be able to pick the people that you wanted, but also to have them you know, report into you and have that direct line um, of sight to what was going on. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I noticed uh, watching you go through that is I always thought you had incredible natural strategic skills. Like you could cut through a lot of data and information and find the essence of a brand and the strategic choices. I remember you, I, I watched people be impressed by you cutting through a lot of confusing data about some of the new markets you were going into and giving people clear choices on your team. Then they could make those choices with you, right? Those became easier. Uh, but I think what was most impressive to me now looking at the, the whole journey you went over the 20 or so years is that you maintained your edge, like your appetite for constant learning. And you are an example of someone who I think has doubled down on a strength and not that you haven't improved in other areas, but I think your strategic ability has gotten sharper over the years. The natural ability was there, whether you got that from your dad, who was also in the industry or you came by it naturally through your, the way you're wired. And, you know, the, I would say you're pretty quick, you're, you're, you have that sort of high processing speed of your brain can fire through complex information in a very quick period of time. But I look at you now as a strategic thinker, and I can see that you've come a long way, even though you're already pretty gifted. And I think one of the reasons for that, Gerard, is that you aren't afraid to try new things, to try not only different ideas, but put yourself in uncomfortable positions, positions where you don't know everything and you're learning as you go. So moving consulting, going into the RA field with, with Rob at UCB. And then I know you got the call from your old friend, John, to say, hey, I'm starting a rare disease company in Canada, which at the time was a risky play. Rare disease wasn't that prominent. And Alexion was one of the first to make a big investment in Canada. And I think you were employee number two there as well, right? Weren't you the second guy after John? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I seem to recall following you guys into a building up in Vaughn with boxes at one point <laughs> <laughs> in an empty space. There was you and him and I think one other employee. Um, but yeah, wow. That was, that's going back a few years, but what led to that? Because there, it seemed like you had some really interesting momentum at UCB and then the, the gear switching happened and you're over there with John building another company from scratch. So what was the motivation behind that? So when you work with great people, uh, Rob, and you have that opportunity to work with great people, you want to keep working with them, right? And John's an incredible individual with great insights and, and great capabilities. Um, and so when somebody like that, you know, wants you on their team, you know, you want to be there. And especially when, you know, he believed in Alexion too and made me believe in it. And uh, so he had that, you know, vision, that you know, strategic direction uh, for it. Uh, and also, you know, UCB was interesting, but it wasn't 
that next level opportunity, that great learning opportunity uh, for me, like Alexia and would be. It's just a different area, like you said, rare disease, something unique, something that other people hadn't done. And it was definitely a learning experience. And actually for the 14 years I was there, it was a learning experience every day, I'd say, and probably will continue to be for others that are there right now. Yeah, and I look at the run that you had there, and I, it, I think I would have been surprised if you and I were standing in the parking lot that first week of Alexion and some fortune teller had come up to us, looked in the crystal ball and said, Young Gerard, you're going to be here for almost 15 years. I would have doubted the veracity of her ability as a fortune teller because you had this and you, you, the voracious appetite for change and newness and challenge, right? But you had almost 15 years there. And I, I, what I sort of attribute that to in terms of your character and values is um, something you and I talked about early on. The reason, one of the reasons you reminded me of me. Uh, when I first met you was I, I had a mentor named Sheldon that said to me, Hey kid, you do your best work when I keep your cup right to the top, like the, the liquid right to the top of your cup. <laughs> if you get, if your glass is half full, you get bored, you're messy. Like you're not very productive. You get distracted. You let the shiny butterflies distract you. But if I keep you engaged at the highest possible level, um, you're great. Now, if it overflows, that's a problem too. So I saw the same thing in you. Like you were at your best when you were super challenged, weren't spreading yourself too thin. And I saw you do that a few times. I'm sure you laugh at that. <laughs> those, some of those ideas or, or examples in your own head. And I, I'm certainly guilty of the same, but at the same time, you're never at your best road when you're bored. Like, not that that happened much, but you look at Alexion and that almost 15 year run, man, did you ever squeeze that lemon? Well, cause it, you had some tremendous stretch opportunities that started with that first gig with John, where you were helping launch the company. But I also admired your courage. And I think that's a word that runs right through your story is you, you're not afraid to try new things that you went global for a while. You came back to be more of a commercial lead in Canada. So tell me a little, t- tell me a little bit about those decisions. So I want to say probably, what, three or four years into helping John launch Alexion and build a great team and have tremendous success, you took a global role. So why did you do that? Because that that's that was a big move to work beyond the Canadian borders. Yeah, you know, I think it's that uh, challenge and learning opportunity and also the ability to grow. You know, many people have told me, um, mentors, including yourself, uh, Rob, that getting that international global experience was really important for your career. Uh, and at the time, I was like, ah, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think I don't really need it, um, but let me do it and and see what it's all about because it'll be a different, it'll be different, it'll be challenging, it'll be interesting, I'm sure. Uh, having done it now and looking back on it, and, you know, everyone was absolutely right. Um, the learnings are amazing, right? To actually be out there and understand how Germany works, how Japan works, how the U.S. works, uh, how all the different EU five countries work, Australia. They're all quite unique, but yet similar in, in different ways. And that was a, an incredible experience uh, for me. But also just being able to meet a lot of different people from different areas and actually get into the business at a much higher level. And one thing I, I really learned there is that, you know, it's it's shocking, you know, even though you have a tier one company like Alexion, there's so much that you can do as an individual. And people always say or think to themselves, I can't make a difference. But you can, as an individual, if you find the areas that are lacking or the gaps that exist, 
and try and fill those gaps. And I was super fortunate to be able to, you know, fill a couple of those, you know, in creating, uh, propel the, you know, Alexia and launch model uh, with a colleague of mine uh, from the U.S. And then also creating, you know, what you think would be something that would be standard in all pharmaceutical companies, but unfortunately wasn't at the time of Alexia, which is a single source of truth. So providing a database that actually shared information on launches uh, with the whole organization so that everyone had real-time access to what was happening in every different country and what was happening at the global level. Um, so people can make really good decisions with current information versus, you know, a slide deck that may have been two years old. So, you know, some of those things uh, can be done. And, you know, honestly, I, when I look back on that experience, I think to myself, I'm, I'm so happy that I had that opportunity to uh, work with my international colleagues, but also just to understand the business in a different way that I could never have understood from Canada. How did it make you better, do you think, Gerard, when they asked you to take a bigger leadership role in Canada? Because to your point, I remember you and I even having this conversation at the time, <clears throat> country leadership for you is was imminent. Whether you stayed at Alexion or you decided to go to another company, you had done everything to, to give yourself that opportunity. And then alas, you got it. I think it was, if I remember, around 2020 at Alexion. Um, but how did it make you better at that job to have had global perspective and experiences like the ones you just described? I think it's just taking some of those different ways of thinking from different countries and trying to implement them within the KA market and seeing if they'll work. There's so many different ways of running a business that different other countries have and, and different opportunities that you, you think in a much broader perspective. You can think a lot more out of the box because you have all these experiences, all these little opportunities to learn that you can't have at the local level, especially I find Canada is at a disadvantage, right? Because we're often either align with the U.S. or align with Europe. And we're aligned with the U.S., you know, you're a, a small fish in a very big pond and you get a very little chance to understand what's going on deeply in the U.S. And if you're aligned with Europe, you're so far away that you don't get a chance to be at all those meetings that you'd like to be at because the flights take forever and, and the costs are expensive. And so you don't get the full benefit of, of doing those things. But being in the international role, you really do get that opportunity and that chance to understand those things in a, in a deep way. And I, I would guess you're also better at fighting for resources, right? You know how decisions get made at that level when they're parsing out global budgets and looking at how can Canada deliver, well, punch above its weight, I think is the expression that I hear most often with people who've had a good run at it. And I would say that if you look at the chance that you got with Alexion to come back and be commercial lead in Canada, I think that's the part I, I would say you seem to enjoy most, right? It wasn't just the P&L, but to make sure Canada had a voice at the table and that you guys were influencing strategy beyond your borders. And that's one of the things that I see in, in the last 20 years, how many Canadians have had opportunities to go global or go to the U.S. office or wherever the head office is. And there's even some who've parlayed that into staying you know, in those areas for multiple years. But, but they've not all been successful. Um, many have been successful professionally. Many have struggled personally because it is a big thing to ask of family, right? You're either having to move them to a new country or if you, try to, if you decide to do the job from Canada, it puts, there's a lot of travel, puts tremendous pressure on the family. How did you manage to be successful? Because it's not an easy thing to adapt to. 
Yeah, I think it's having those discussions with family early on uh, and really understanding what, what they need and what they want and what they are willing to accept uh, is critically important, right? And uh, you, Rob, actually were the person that told me multiple times, make sure you have those discussions early, make sure you understand what it is because opportunities come up all of a sudden out of nowhere. And then you don't want to be making rash decisions. You want to be making you know well-informed decisions on whether you want to do something like that or not. And, and that made a, a big difference. And I, I do you know counsel other people on my teams in the past to really think about what you want from your career, right? Because you, if you want to be CEO, there is you know a trade-off right, to being CEO often. Uh, you can't have everything. So you have to decide what's really important to you and, and what do you want? You know, is you know, or is your family local and you want to spend a lot of time with them and with your friends, et cetera? Do you want to travel around the world and get and experience a lot of different things with a lot of different people and not necessarily, you know, be where you grew up um, as a child? You know, what what's really important to your family? Do they need, do you need to be around your family? Do you want to be around your family all the time? And I think people don't think about those things. Sometimes they're so locked in on their career that they forget that there was more to life than their career. I think it's really important uh, to balance those pieces out. And that's something that, you know, I, I think I did decently well throughout mine. I knew what I really wanted. I knew how important it was to be with my family as much as I could, both my immediate family and extended family. And I tried to balance those things out the best way possible, but yet get those experiences that I wanted to have on an international and global basis. Yeah, I, I liked your thoughtful approach and the fact that you were willing and able to have those conversations with your wife, Rosie, and your extended family as well, so that when these things came up, it wasn't one of those really challenging scenarios where it's suddenly in front of you and you got to make a decision which you know has huge consequences and you're really not prepared. And that happens a lot. It's just the way business works, where suddenly a door opens and you weren't aware of it, and there it is. got to decide whether to go or not. Yeah, I had that same experience going to California. Now, as you know from our conversations in the past, I got lucky on that one because I was on vacation and Chris and I decided, my girlfriend at the time, even before we got married, let's go to California and went on vacation. We had a chance to see it, um, got a chance to show her around the area. And it's funny because on the flight on the way back, we had said on the way down, you know, we're never, if if we stay together as a couple, we're, we're it's not something we see in our future, right? Living down down in crazy la la land but on the way back was funny because i think at that point we were engaged we're thinking well could we well under the best of circumstances yes you know it's maybe not as crazy as at first it seemed and then we started just the week before i got the call interview in california we'd we had sort of laid out because at that time we were married we we're starting to make plans for the future i think chris was pregnant with our second and we were really having those more thoughtful conversations about the specifics and lo and behold, doesn't the phone ring in the cottage I was renting <laughs> and there's an opening California. Do you want to interview? And thank goodness we'd had those experiences, but that was luck in our case more than getting ahead of the curve. But I think you in particular really did a good job Gerard, over the years of having a, your, your eyes clearly in the job you were being paid to do at the moment you were in those jobs. But Carving out like almost a discipline, you carved out time to be thinking a couple moves down the chessboard. Maybe that's your marketing and strategy mind at work. But it really seemed to be one of the, I would think, the secrets to your success, right? Is that you were very thoughtful about your brand and about 
what you wanted to do and why you wanted to do what you wanted to do. Like when I would ask you, you always had such thoughtful answers, which just kind of leads me to this next point. You've decided now to leave corporate life after what a 25 year run and tremendous success getting global assignments, making an impact beyond Canada, coming back and running the commercial footprint for Alexion. Tell me a little bit about that decision. We haven't had as many conversations about this as we've had other things, but this one, I, I, I'm curious uh, to understand the thinking behind it, as well as what you see as the exciting part and what scares you about it. Sure. I think change is always scary. Right. So I think that uh, is one thing that I think everyone has to accept is that change is scary, period. Right. Uh, whether it's change in the environment that you're in or change outside that environment uh, when you take on a new role you know, somewhere else. But for me, it's always been about that learning and challenge piece and trying to do something different. And I've always been interested in, you know, going on to take on a real consulting role where we could help uh, people in, in a different way, you know, within the farm industry. There's a lot we can do as part of an organization to help patients um, and to help um, physicians to get what they really need. But outside, as a as a consultant uh, to pharma, you can do something more for society as a whole, too. This uh, new venture that I'm in, uh, Novasen, uh, I'm working with you know CEOs, ex-CEOs from other companies, uh, people who have tons of experience um, across the board in their functional area getting a chance to try and bring companies from Europe, um, Canada, or not Canada, Europe, the US and Australia into Canada. It was a huge opportunity to bring products, both medical device, diagnostic and pharmaceutical products into the Canadian environment that would ne- not necessarily be here for patients. Um, and I think as Canadians, we deserve to have better products and, and lots of products to help us um, as we go forward from a medical standpoint. The Issue often is is you know, a threefold. One is that you know companies are not sure what the environment looks like and how much um, investment uh, as well as ROI they're going to get from the Canadian market. The second piece is the regulatory and, and pricing pathway in Canada can be a little bit difficult at times to manage, and so people don't know how to, to manage that piece. And, and the third piece in the Canadian environment that's hard for companies is people. Right, getting the right people on board and on the bus can be difficult for a company if they want to start in Canada. And that's something that uh, in this new venture, Nova said, we'll be able to do for companies is really helping them with those three aspects and helping them to start up uh, companies within the Canadian environment. Well, I can imagine your clients are pretty attracted to that value proposition because for them, if they've got momentum in their domestic markets, one of the first markets that a lot of companies look at is Canada, whether they're US-based or European-based, or as you say, Australia, Japan, because we're we're a bit of a test market for if they haven't been into the US yet. I know that MERS did this, a um, number of companies have done this, where before they go completely global and dive into the US, they'll use Canada as a bit of a beachhead because it's English, it's North America, well, English and French, but North America. Now we're a socialized medical market, so there's that continuity between many of the European markets and the Australias and the Japans, but we're different enough that it gives them a chance to cut their teeth before they make the huge investment in the US. And then the other flip side is true, as we know, many American technology companies, their first foray is generally into into the socialized medical markets around the world, which 
most are beyond the US. They'll, they'll start in Canada. So your client base must be quite robust because they could be anywhere in the in the world. But what you just described as those three elements makes you kind of a plug and play. Like if I'm them thinking, well, I'd like to do this, where do I start? Having someone like you and ex-CEOs and Canadian companies with all of those deliverables is, okay, here's my baby. How do we make this work for us and for you? So what's the win-win for them in the medium to long term? Obviously, you can see the short term, it's plug and play. You can get them into the market more quickly. You can find them the right people. But in the longer term, why would they do business with Novacent? You know, launch success is so important, like we talked about before. If you get that trajectory off the start and it's a good trajectory, it defines everything, right? The first six months. But if it isn't and it goes the wrong way, it can be the opposite. And so really helping people understand that part and having the know-how in Canada to make sure that launch trajectory is as good as it can get is, is critical. And so that's the piece that we can provide them with is that launch experience and that ability across the board to make sure that all the pieces, whether it's you know the regulatory, the market access, the patient advocacy part, you know, any part of the of the uh, whole mix is managed appropriately so they can be successful. Even the legal and patent pieces uh, are difficult sometimes in Canada, and they just really need to understand how things are different. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. And, and I really think that's that's a really important point. Those first, the first foray into a, a, a market. And how many times have you and I and our listeners seen companies get off on the right foot that just double down on that, the momentum, um, the proverbial snowball down the hill, it's rolling fast and straight and off it goes and it never looks back. But we've also seen plenty of examples where the first product launched doesn't go so well and it takes a lot to recover. So uh, yeah, I can understand that why your clients would be attracted to that longer term notion. Uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit with you, Jared, because as I, I know you're excited about the new venture and now that we understand it better, I'm looking forward to helping you guys a little bit here to continue to have success and traction in Canada. But I want to you know, look back on the sort of the big, the bigger picture of your work experience from the time you graduated from U of T, got your first job, I think at Fournier, right, in sales in the pharmaceutical sector, all the way to today. If you had to put your finger on two lessons that you got from that journey, one from a success that either you were part of or were <clears throat> you lucked into for that matter, because it could have just been lucky. What did you learn on the plus side that came from that experience? And what did you learn from a mistake that you made along the way? Sure. I think on the, on the plus side, you know, it would have to be that, you know, early experience on the MVU side, right? Really understanding that setting things up properly, having a great team in mind, and then executing exceptionally well makes a massive difference uh, for a launch. And that that was huge for my career um, and allowed me to continuously do that every place that I went to, um, including when I helped other, other countries launch and international. So that made a big difference for me to understand things. And probably on the other side, it's on the people side. So, you know, it, you know, you don't always do so hot, <laughs> you know, the first time you're managing people. And I definitely had my fair share of mistakes. And just learning that, you know, you really have to let people understand, or you have to understand how a person's going to go from A to B and let them take their own path to that and not dictate it, right? When, like you said, I, you know, I think I had a good capacity for learning and understanding and doing things. 
And that's a problem sometimes because you end up wanting to do it for other people, right? And tell them how to do it yeah. because you think that you've got it. But situational leadership is so important. And with different people, giving them the opportunity to think it through themselves, giving them the opportunity to figure out how they're going to get from A to B and giving them the opportunity to explain how they're going to get from A to B. And if it makes sense, even though it's not the way that you do it, letting them do it and sometimes fail is really important uh, for the individual. And it's important for the culture of an organization too, for people to feel respected and empowered, to be able to do what they need to do to achieve. And the beautiful part is that often it does work, right? A different way of doing things does work. It may not work the way that you thought it was, but it works. And so it's a great opportunity to learn as well. That's funny because as you know, Mike Cloutier was one of our earlier guests and uh, he talks about that quite a bit in our interview. And it's something that has always been a theme from Mike. And I'm really happy to hear you endorsing the same important people leadership concept, right? The idea of in this day and age, we're past that time in our business community where it was, you do it because your boss told you to, right? The whole top down, uh, you know, fear and control model of, of management to one of more ownership. And, uh, and, and Mike speaks to that as you do that, You'll get there better and faster if you can back off and let go of what you used to do when you were the individual contributor in the job and give them ownership and act as the, the person in the pasture seat. Don't touch the wheel, right? But help guide them through the journey. And you're right. It takes, it takes some courage and some mistakes, <laughs> which we all made in our careers to not, not overmanage it, not supervise to back off and to allow empowerment. And I'm, 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 I'm really happy to have you share that. What, one of the things I think also defines you and Mike and other guests that we've admired and we're including in this series is I heard someone say about you and I heard someone say this about Mike. So it's very much a common thread that you remind them of that expression. People don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Like the two of you guys are compassionate folks. You're as much, uh, head, uh, you're as much heart as you are head, and I and I think Gerard, that's also one of the defining characteristics of your brand as a leader. Is you're just a guy who cares about people, and it's just who you are. It's how you were raised. It's your DNA, but it comes across right. And it's I'm sure you've worked for people where that wasn't the case. They were mechanical. Maybe they were taught in courses to be a little bit more emotionally intelligent, but it's a little awkward sometimes and. You know, you give them credit for doing their best, but it's just not their natural DNA. With you, with Mike, with other folks that we see in our travels that have had a great run, I think it's one of the reasons why when you decide to become a people leader, I I wasn't surprised to see guys like you and Mike have success with that because you just genuinely care about people and it comes across. Thanks, Rob. You know, I think I think you have to be open to making mistakes, though, because nobody's perfect. But, you know, because I think, uh, I don't know if Mike said this, but people leadership is difficult and you make mistakes, but knowing that you will make mistakes is okay, right? And then fixing those mistakes as you go forward uh, and make sure you don't repeat them is critical on the people side, as well as the business side of things. And, you know, I think the hardest part these days is that you know, some leaders think empowerment means letting people do what they want, whenever they want, however they want. And that's not real empowerment either. So I think it's a balance between the two. Right, really helping people and making sure that you understand their path from A to B, because just letting them do it on their own, that's not fair either, right? Because often I see managers these days who just neglect their people, 
And yeah, that's it's, not, it's abdication. It's not yeah, empowerment. Yeah, exactly. That's not appropriate. And they and they say, oh, I'm empowering my people. Well, you're not empowering your people. You're not helping them at all. You're not helping them get to the next level. You're not working with them to challenge them on what they're doing and to see if there's a better way of doing it. You know, that's not that's not the right approach. And I think we need to think about how we do things on, on both ends and that we really do empower our people, but support them at the same time. What advice do you give young people who reach out to you, Jordan? I know they do because I actually send them your way. And when people call me and are asking for some advice and who can I connect them to, you know, I've sent people over to talk to folks like you and Mike and John and other people we've talked about here today. But when you get those calls, what do you hear yourself saying to folks who are behind you on the same ladder? coming up the life science industry or other industries, what advice do you give to the 20 somethings that reach out to you? Sure. There's a few things. So I I think the first and most important one is know your why, you know, why are you doing what you're doing and continuously reevaluate that and understand what it is that you're doing and why you want to do it. Because if you know, you can get caught in that rat race, right. Um, And not really enjoy what you're doing. If you, if you don't spend that time to do it, the second piece we talked about a little bit earlier is making sure that you you understand what your family wants to, not only what you want, but also what your family wants and what they're willing to do and, and where they're willing to go because things do progress quite quickly early in the career and, and there's opportunities that sit there. The other piece is, you know, I early on was, you know, didn't take advantage of my network, right? So I had a lot of people that I knew and didn't take advantage of my network. And I think there's a huge opportunity to do that for people, right? Get connected take advantage of the connections that you have, speak to people, you know, grab a coffee with people and understand uh, what's happening there so that you can, so people can get to know you a little better. And so when opportunities do pop up, you know, they'll think about you for those opportunities. And maybe the last you know, really important thing that I tell people is spend the time with an internal and external mentor. Right? It makes a big difference for you to have somebody you can speak to about what's going on. And you learn so much from those people um, when you spend that time with them. And at first, it seems like, what am I going to say? What are we going to talk about? But there's tons of things to talk about and understand and situations to walk through when you take that time with people. Now, there's a lot to unpack there with what you've shared with us. But one of the things that jumps to my mind listening to you describe that, Gerard, is you've done a really good job over the years from what I can observe. And I think this is a theme that runs through the folks that are joining us for these podcasts too, it seems so far, but you, you, you sort of look at your career integrated with your personal life. It's not, you don't separate them. It's, it's something I know you take quite seriously. What's the, what's the secret in that sauce? Because you and I know lots of people who are successful in their careers, but perhaps don't have the same success in their personal lives, they hopefully eventually figure it out. But you've had a very solid uh, run in your career. You've had a very successful uh, personal life in terms of your responsibilities to your family, uh, both your personal family as well as your wider family. I know you're very involved in your community. Uh, You still have close friendships you've kept for years through sports and other activities. So how do you account for that? I think it's just knowing that you want to do that, right? And understanding that up front and then realizing that it's going to be very difficult if you're the type of person that loves challenge and enjoys your job and wants to do the best you can do every day, that that balance is going to be difficult, 
right? And so you have to work very hard at it to make sure that your job doesn't overtake your life, right? It doesn't become every part of your life. Uh, you know, people always said to me when I was younger, you know, you have to have date nights with your wife, right? Make sure that those things happen. They are really important because it's very easy to disconnect from your relationships when things are busy and the children are young and there's a lot going on. And, and it's super important because later in life, like now my kids, both of them are off to university and it's just the two of us, right? It's really and myself. You don't want to be in a situation where, you know, you don't know each other anymore, right? That's just a, a bad place to be uh, later in life. Yeah. And those continuous investments in, I guess you could call it the wheel of life, right? The the financial, of course, is an important underpinning for everybody, the community, your family, your physical health, your mental health, your spiritual health, for that matter. Have you found that that rounded approach is really the key to not let anything be neglected? I, I don't know if I've done it, Rob. I, I think I, I think about it all the time, but <laughs> uh, I haven't been the best at it, you know, over the whole period. Um, you know, there's been times definitely where, you know, the physical aspect hasn't been there or the family aspect hasn't been there. You know, things always uh, come off, but I think the key is to be aware of it and then correct, right? When things aren't going down the right path and, and same with the spiritual piece. I think having all those pieces top of mind and thinking about it on a regular basis is super important because they can get away from you really quickly. Um, and if you don't, if you don't set back and actually think about it and take the time to think about it, then, you know, it can be in a very awkward situation. Yeah. And listen, this is something I wanted to in particular speak to you about because it's something we share that isn't quite as common, but I think both you and I were brought up in what I would call spiritual households, right? Good uh, family values. And we had the underpinning of, of that in our upbringing, right? And we tried to create that for our kids too, as we raise them uh, with our spouses. Do, what do you see with the generation that's behind us the, with the millennials uh, personally, I don't see that they have the same uh, foundational support in that aspect of life that we enjoyed. It's, 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 I know it's not, it's different and it's going to be different from generation to generation, but it's profoundly different. Like I remember my son came home from school. We moved back from the U S and he was showing us school pictures and telling us who all his friends were. And, and he said, uh, well, this boy here, dad, you'll know him from church. I go, Oh yeah, I, I do recognize that young guy. And I go, now that's the only, you two are the only ones I see. He goes, well, that's because we're the only two in my whole class that go to a regular religious function. And I was thinking to myself at the time, this is when he was just probably six or seven years old. Oh my goodness. How much has changed in one generation? Because in the time that I grown up when I was his age, it was the opposite. There were maybe one or two kids who didn't have a place that their family went to, whether it was synagogue or temple or church. And when one generation, it flipped upside down where he and this other boy were the outliers. And I don't, I'm not so much a religious fanatic as I am a spiritual fanatic. Like I, I don't really think it matters how you express your relationship with God, but your relationship with God, in my view, if you believe there is a God, is an important thing to nurture, like any other spoke on the wheel of life. In fact, you could argue, and I do, that it's the most important. But how, Gerard, as you interact with the next generation of people that you engage at work and outside of work, how do you reconcile how significant their upbringing 
and the environment is for the next generation. So I, I think it is significant, Rob, but at the same time, I think it's different today, like you said, than it was in the past, right? In the past, I think there is, you know, uh, a lot of what I would call automatic faith, right? So people were born into an environment, believed in it immediately, or were forced to believe in it immediately, and went on with life. I think today it's different because kids are exposed to so much more. Uh, and with the internet, especially, the exposures, you know, massive, right? Right. And so I think now it's about them understanding it for themselves and making sure that they make the decisions for themselves and that they read a lot about what's going on. So they understand what it is that they're doing, right? It's not just blind faith, but it's actually faith based on on something, right? Understand that God's there for you for a reason and that there's an opportunity we have a discussion with him. But I think every person and each individual has to do that themselves. I don't think we can force our kids to do no. that. I mean, we took our kids to church and we did, you know, other spiritual things with them. But I just talked to them about what's important in life and, you know, the things that the values that are important to them right, and what they really want out of life. And I think having those discussions helps them and then exposing right, our kids to different um, different aspects of uh, religion uh, and multiple religions. Right. I, I like you, uh, Rob, I believe that, you know, all religions have the same basis uh, and, you know, one God ultimately. And that, you know, people need to express their faith the way that they that they want to, but that it is really nice to have that spiritual peace that you can fall back on because there are bad days, right? From the work side, there are bad days from the home side, there are bad days from the global side, as we're seeing even today. And it's nice to have that to fall back on uh, and to and to have in your life. Well, and I think it's incumbent upon leaders in the society we now find ourselves in, right? And I say this to my own boys and other young people in my life, like my nieces and nephews, like if you choose to work in the modern economy, especially in the Canadian economy, which is very multicultural, probably as multicultural as anywhere in the world, look at Toronto. It's probably the most cosmopolitan city in the world. If you're going to participate in that, you have to be able to engage people and meet them where they're at. So to your point, I, Gerard, I know you do this. <clears throat> I try to do this, but I also try to encourage young people to do this. Like, <clears throat> pick up and read the background material you need to understand somebody's walk. So I've, you know, I've read the Bhagavad Gita. I've read the Quran. I've read the Mormon Bible. I've, I've re reread the Christian Bible a few times. Um, I've tried to dig into the Torah a little bit because that's the environment we're in. We have people from all of those different faith systems that are in our work environments and our personal environments. And if we want to have an, uh, not only economy, but society that functions well, that's multicultural and cosmopolitan, the individuals, it's incumbent upon us to invest in it. It's not going to happen for us. And I think it's one of the things that as a country, we've done better than most other countries. We've got a lot of imperfections, but if you compare Canada to other jurisdictions around the world, and you work globally, I work globally, we try to travel as much as we can. It is one of the things that I appreciate about Canada is that Canadians, by and large, are open-minded but intelligent enough to ask good questions and try to learn about each other, because that's where I think the progress comes from, is being able to really empathize with the, the underpinning of someone's educational system and spiritual system 
so that you can see things through a different lens. And I think that's a, an important part. And I really appreciate the next generation's appetite for this because there are some that I see that have that they've taught me, certainly in my travels in the last 20 years. It's so exciting for me to go into companies where it's got a young, dynamic vibe. And that's one of the things I'll take away from my interaction with them is it maintains my appetite as someone with more years, more kilometers on my, my engine to, to keep up my energy around diversity and trying to really see things through other eyes. But I also, on the other hand, I guess I lament or sort of hope that it, the pendulum hasn't swung too far the other way where it, you know, there's no appetite on the spiritual side. And it's like, eh, just God doesn't exist. My parents were foolish for going to a church or a synagogue or a temple. I'm not even interested. It's, it's just a, it's just a, like a system of rules or it's a superstition. And I, that I find difficult to deal with. It's, I want to encourage people, look, don't let somebody else do the thinking for you. But if you think there's some creative intelligence, go find out. I just had this conversation with a young lady last week who got referred to me and she's late twenties. And it came up in the conversation. I said, well, my guidance is don't let somebody think it for you. But on the other hand, don't discard it. It's obviously important to 80% of people around the world for a reason that ought to pique your curiosity. So dive in, but do it for yourself. Don't let somebody from a, like a pew or sorry, from a, a podium, tell you what to think when you're standing in the pew, so to speak. And I don't know if you share that same perspective because you're raising two boys as well, but they're off to university. They're engaging with people from different places in the world, different backgrounds. How do you guide them so that they, they maintain their own base, but yet learn from other people that they meet? Well, you know, in uh, high school, Rob, I took this beautiful course in you know, religion of the world's people. And you know, I, I talk to my kids about this all the time, is that the basis of all religions is pretty much the same. Uh, and that, you know, people take a lot from their faith. And throughout history, people have abused that, right, in different areas for power. Um, and just explain that to them, because I think people see religion in many cases as negative, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that 5% rule, right? 5% take something that's really good and make it something not so good. Right. And it's happened throughout history with many different religions. And so I think it's super important to help our kids understand that, you know, they need to really dig deep, like you said, understand what it really means and, and think about it for themselves as to what's important to them and what their values are, and what their beliefs are uh, from that perspective. Uh, because, you know, without that spirituality, life is so much more difficult. And I think for everyone. Yeah, and that's a interesting thing. I was listening to a panel, uh, YouTube podcast. Uh, there's a really group, a really powerful group of people examining some of the old Torah and Old Testament documents together. They're talking right now about Exodus and all these fantastic minds, and that's what they're saying. <laughs> if you look at the history, you don't have to look at the 20th century to to look at what happens when you throw it all away and you have nihilism and you abandon the thought of any kind of moral code or spiritual essence you know you only have to look at cambodia you only have to look at nazi germany you only have to look at some of the terrible things that happened under stalin etc cetera, etc cetera. when you have none of that when you throw all of it away and say oh it's all a bunch of superstition hey yeah well let's look at the the, the alternative reality because we've lived through it and uh, it's not the best, it's not the best choice so yeah it's an interesting i'm 
it's great that you had a course like that in your high school. I wish I did. I've been trying to do it on my own ever since. <laughs> and it was very, very valuable. I think it just opened my mind to understanding that, you know, what the basis is of all religion um, and that you just need to be open to people and their thoughts and their unique thoughts and, and why, right? And understanding, I think, other people's why is really important because we each have our own. And, you know, just being open to that is critically important. Is there anything we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, Gerard, that you want to chat about before we, we call it a day? I've really enjoyed our conversation, but I always try to be mindful of that with our guests. Anything you would like to cover? So maybe one thing on, you know, the second part of your career, we talked about, you know, what's important in the early part of your career, Rob, but I think it's really important to think about, you know, the second part of your career. So when you're actually managing people and when you're helping people, and, you know, I talked about earlier how, you know, getting an opportunity to get involved in a startup is amazing, right? It's a huge opportunity to learn, you know, once you have the basic understanding of what you need to do. It's a huge opportunity to understand all the parts of the business, which I think is something that you know, people should do. It's, it's. I know it feels high risk, but there are so many jobs and so many opportunities out there. If it doesn't pan out, there's going to be something else. If you're a hardworking individual who's intelligent, don't worry about it. You're gonna, you're gonna do fine, right? And if it doesn't work out, there'll be another job, you know, somewhere else for you. Yeah, and and you certainly did that in spades. I mean, but but it's come up so many times in the last several months in conversations i've had i'm really glad you brought this up you know this everybody hopefully develops a subject matter expertise you know whether it's analytics or music or sales or marketing in your case right and you you invest in that but you get you 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 develop a certain confidence and a certain acumen and create certain results that speak for themselves but it takes guts like you have to do in that startup environment at uh, ucb and biogen to say okay I've established a certain credibility. I know I know I can do it, and other people recognize I can do it. Let me push myself into these broader areas of a, of a start a startup environment can create. And I think that's brilliant advice, Gerard, that I hope our listeners take to heart. And it doesn't matter what age you're at, because the subject matter expertise takes a while to develop in different places and different disciplines. Like I just had a, a podcast guest who was in medical affairs. Well, it took her 10 years to get her PhD at McGill, you know, so <laughs> that's a different curve to be on. Right. Other, other people can develop subject matter expertise when there's 18, 19, 20 years old, but you're so right about if you aren't careful, that sort of innovative intelligence does peak out at some point. And it's usually much earlier in life than people think it is. It's that other second curve of intelligence, the fluid intelligence that, you know, becomes more interesting and, and important, um, being able to, to kind of work well with people, to be able to think enterprise-wide or strategically much broader, and become more of a performance person through your effectively working with other people, to your point, like being able to leverage your impact across other human beings and their expertise that second curve is enormously important just for human development, but also the market pays a lot of money for that, right? That's how people become general managers and CEOs is they're not just subject matter experts at finance or human resources or medical affairs or sales or marketing. They parlay that vertical into more of a horizontal challenge and opportunity, like those steps you took to do the startups, to go global, and to learn those 
skills that the market has a need for, it's not only lucrative, but it's interesting. It keeps life interesting, right? And exactly. you're someone that's wired the way you are, that you're at your best when you're challenged and uh, with well, the cups right at the edge with the water at the edge of the top of the cup. It's certainly been a successful formula. So, well, Gerard, thanks for bringing that all to a clear perspective for us. It's been really interesting. I appreciate your time here today and wish you nothing but the best in your new venture. So again, it's Nova Send Inc. And uh, yeah, congratulations on your role as managing partner. And I can't wait to see what comes from that venture. That's great, Robin. Uh, thank you for having me uh, with you and congratulations on your amazing 20 years and look forward to celebrating the next 20 uh, with you in the future. Right on. Take care, Jerry. Take care. Bye-bye.